We acknowledge that we are on Treaty 6 territory, the gathering grounds for many diverse First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples whose footsteps have marked this land and whose presence continue to enrich our vibrant community. Hello and welcome back to Research Recasted, the knowledge mobilization podcast. I'm Brittany Eklund and I'm here with Dylan Cave and our guest today, Dr. Ross Shaw. Dr. Shaw is an assistant professor in biological sciences specializing in marine biology and he's passionate about the preservation of coral reefs and preserving the health of fish and the oceans. He received McEwen's Distinguished Teaching Award in 2016 and is currently involved in a large-scale project to bring a public aquarium to the greater Edmonton area. In addition to marine biology, today we're talking with Dr. Shaw about his other research involving video games. You may have heard of one, Life on the Edge. Hi, Ross. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hello. Yeah. So first of all, um, we'd love to start by learning a little bit more about what attracted you or excited you about marine biology. Um, marine biology, going back quite a ways, um, I guess, to an interest in larger ecosystems. And even though I was originally kind of nomadic, as I put it, moved around by my parents, so to speak, with the tribe all over the place in North America, I was interested uh, quite a bit in working with fish, I knew. And uh, interestingly enough, uh, disease originally. So I always thought practically in life, I'd be interested in working in a field that would always be around. <laughs> well, fish medicine <laughs> yeah. is one. Um, and yeah, I think, I mean, marine biology, like that's one of those cool things that kids want to be when they grow up, right? Like you think SeaWorld, which is obviously maybe not a great idea of conservation. Um, but something I'm really excited to talk about with you is a conservation aquarium. So I guess before we dive into that, can you tell us a little bit about the Aquatic Biosphere Program? Sure. So the Aquatic Biosphere is, even in its terminology, something that kind of makes you pause because it is in um, essence easy to explain uh, to the general audience of, say, the public that you're looking at uh, construction of a facility that is a public aquarium, so to speak, but very different. Uh, so the working name we have on the project right now, Aquatic Biosphere, really lends you to think about, well, you're dealing with water, obviously, and you're dealing with a biosphere, which is very large, a biological living sphere, which can be the whole planet and is in essence. So we are in building this uh, project uh, really looking at hitting into uh, education and awareness of the aquatic ecosystems and how um, there's a lot of diversity and issues uh, surrounding that from the organisms themselves and conservation issues to the economics and the actual cultural issues interacting with uh, water. So the facility itself um, is one of the things I want to accomplish in life. Uh, and the other being the other half of this podcast, which I've accomplished the first, which is the educational video game. Okay. So when you're talking about the aquatic biosphere program, I mean, when you say a biosphere essentially could be the size of the earth, what would this particular project encompass? Like, is it going to be one area of the province? Is it going to be rivers, lakes, watersheds? Is it going to be wetlands? Like what kind of are we looking at? If I was going to go visit the the biosphere, what would I see? What can I expect? Yeah, so the project itself has, um, in the planning phases, come up with a very kind of unique uh, concept that was one we always struggle with in uh, biological sciences is that kind of disconnect with the biology. People love to go out and experience it, but when they go to a lot of these facilities, when you think of a traditional aquarium or the historical aquariums, they mainly go for that kind of consumption and entertainment aspect. They do get some of the education, but you walk into these facilities and you think, oh, I'm going to go to this area. I'm going to go to that area. I'll go see the coral reefs. I'll go see the freshwater lakes. I'll go see the Arctic exhibit. And you kind of pop around within the exhibit. Uh, we are interested in doing a real connection with the education and the biology. So you would look at a facility that has a path development in it. So as you go through the facility, there is representations through displays and so forth and the education aspect, immersive um, 
knowledge that's transferred to you in various aspects. Uh, so you have a connection in a path. So we actually are looking at a water cycle uh, and starting in, most people don't know this, in the Rocky Mountains, the Columbia ice fields, and focusing on Alberta. But Alberta actually feeds its water from the ice fields uh, in the Rocky Mountain snow dome uh, into the actual Arctic Ocean, oh. into the Hudson's Bay region, and also into the Gulf of Mexico. And then that water returns to eventually uh, the Columbia ice fields. So we want to have people follow essentially, in essence, a water drop. And the water drop can actually uh, go another path, which we aren't going to focus on in the development, which is towards uh, British Columbia and away towards the actual Pacific Ocean. But the water drop or the snowflake as it starts and melts. So you see that kind of already you're doing an analogy or a connection. And there's a lot of focus on uh, the species that are in Alberta. So the lakes and the rivers here, which people don't know much about. But there's also an aspect beyond that you can go because you have terrestrial environment that feeds into it a little bit. So you can look at uh, aspects of the uh, society's impact. You can even connect with the water ending up in somewhere like Edmonton. Mm -hmm. And then how we use it each day, you know, cooking and so forth. And then how it returns to the river before being treated and then goes on in the cycle. So keeping a real connection with the actual path and the biology that is connecting to it. I mean, that's really interesting. If anyone's ever been to, um, like, a amusement park, like they have, like, the Disney Wild Kingdom, and it, it kind of reminds me of something that you would walk through or, or go through and follow the path. So I think that's really interesting. Something I'm curious about with it is you mentioned an aquarium would be part of it, and I'm just kind of wondering, like, is this a biosphere with live animals and how does conservation interact with something like an aquarium so yes it would have live exhibits um to be clear we've been doing a lot of building on the project and uh, consultation for example with the various stakeholders uh, we recently completed a feas feasibility study last year uh, funded by the federal government and um the one thing that's very uh, important to understand is there would be living organisms in the facility as they are part of the biology, but we're uh, steering away from larger, more problematic organisms. So there's no cetaceans, there's no whales, uh, there's no, you know, seals and so forth. Uh, those types of aspects of the larger marine mammals. Um, and connecting to the uh, aspect of the conservation is really to... Uh, understand the project itself and the facility um, as you go through it would have um, <clears throat> a huge impact on the aspects of education. Uh, there's so many aspects to that and the project itself um, and also the environment uh, and that conservation aspect. So ideally in these types of facilities you are looking at not only endangered species at risk species but you're also looking at the native species. We have over 60 species of native fish here uh, and you're also looking at invasive species. Yeah. And uh, that's a component to the uh, development. And then you also have the economics. So really we call this a triple E project, which is kind of an interesting analogy. So the education, uh, the environment, and the economics uh, all need to work together. I mean, generally society, we understand they're not disconnected. There's always an impact, especially when it comes to water, uh, water being essential uh, for life at many different uh, levels. And the conservation aspect is uh, very important. So understanding, you know, uh, and real interaction, so an immersive um, experience. Uh, so you can have many aspects to that where you don't necessarily have to have the organisms themselves. Some organisms are so, uh, you know, endangered and threatened, there would be perhaps a lot of difficulty uh, in maintaining some of them, or they get to be very expensive. So for example, uh, in California, they have um, maintained in aquariums some of the sea leafy dragons, but talking behind the scenes to some of these aquariums, which I've worked with, they're like, well, Ross, we paid 128000 U.S. per fish. So wow. <laughs> do you want to take that risk economically <laughs> in your facility? Do you have the ability to do that? Uh, so there are some that are quite rare nowadays and getting, unfortunately, um, more at risk. And we know that with the changing environmental factors well that that's something that i was interested about is like w here locally what 
what kind of aquatic animals and plants are the most threatened here in the prairies that you'd be maybe looking to conserve in this project? Yeah, so there are some, unfortunately, um, to select from. Um, and bull trout is one of the ones, for example, that are um, on the vulnerable list already. Uh, a lot of the aspects of that has to do with our exploitation, too, of the actual species. And uh, bull trout, an example, in the early 1900s, fishing them and then tossing them aside because people didn't like them. Which um, is wild, because yeah. trout is delicious. Yeah. <laughs> and... Uh, working in conjunction with looking at, again, those invasive species. So there's not just fish, but there's other uh, species of plant and so forth. And, you know, these have experts in their own field, um, such as botany and so forth, and looking at those aquatic species that exist in both plants uh, and animals and even uh, other aspects, you know, uh, interacting with invasive species we may not even be aware of or not really aware of. Um, and there's some very interesting examples like... Um, Zebra mussels, most people have heard of. Um, yeah, a lot of times you'll go to the lake and I know they are check like, your boat. check your boat, check your check boat, your for, boat yeah. because of zebra mussels. Yeah, and they've even gone as far as um, really as a governmental political level trying to ramp up that inspection. They use dogs now to sniff oh. for them. Wow. So, yeah, there is um, a great effort, but these invasive species are very tenacious. And we know that from uh, cultural experience on many levels in European history. And... Um, now with zebra mussels, for example, they found them recently coming in on moss balls. So moss, sphagnum moss and things like this that people buy for their gardens and so forth. At pet stores, they were selling these little moss balls and in would come the zebra mussels inside of the moss balls. And they're very concerned that those could be released, obviously, yeah, within Alberta and like, start to establish. Yeah, but how do they survive? They can survive months without water. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So there's very interesting aspects of conveying the education there again um, that people are quite surprised to learn about, but because, you know, there's so much information out there. And again, it's how it's distributed to the public. And we all are aware of that. When people go to these types of facilities, they're one of the top three things to visit at a city. So you mm -hmm. have many aspects there of repeat visits and so forth. And you can also convey it through technology. So there's so much availability where the project can go in aspects of now even the VR, AR technology that's out there uh, and experiencing uh, an immersive aspect. Uh, other species we could look at, there's species of fish that are endangered, you know, the pygmy whitefish, um, lake sturgeon, which people uh, fish uh, still. And uh, there's invasive species of plants like flowering rush and so forth. Uh, zebra mussels, commonly people know about. Um, and then those connections with how the environment is used in the aquatic environment for damming, you know, for logging, for things like that, um, and how this impacts upon our rivers. Uh, so it is a project that really is um, not only giving me a lot of personal experience um, gathering these experts together and starting to get people uh, interested in the project, knowing about the project and working on the project, uh, we have a working board right now. We have an advisory board on the project. And also going through the process, you know, the process of finding a location, uh, completing a feasibility study, and now coming to understand that our one of our next major steps beyond the location is um, getting our project on the list of um, provincial infrastructure projects um, because we've connected with various levels of government and starting to understand the process of how this... Uh, goes through and gets successfully done. Well, you know, I'm really glad that this is going through as a con uh, um, conservation method rather than an attraction. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it'll be an attraction in learning experience, but I think like we talked about earlier, it's just like some of, some of those larger aquariums that are just for profit um, amusements. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, working, working with something that's more on a con conservation method, I think is really important for sure. But it sounds also like there is an approach to this being an experience and to having entertainment value. And like that seems like it's the fourth E, right? Mm -hmm. Because I think it's easier to get, especially kids, to interact with an experience that's fun. Like you go to the Space and Science Center and, you know, it's a blast because there's lots to do. There's lots to mm -hmm. touch. There's lots of things to keep kids engaged and learning about science and Obviously, I mean, this already sounds like a dream experience for me because I'm kind of, 
a nerd and I love these experiences <laughs> even as an adult. Um, so I think that that it's, it sounds amazing. Um, so kind of you, you spoke a little bit about, uh, just doing the feasibility study. I'm just kind of wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about like where the project is in the life cycle, like what's next. Um, when you know, can when I put can... my hands in some aquariums <laughs> yeah, and when touch can some, we come some visit? squishy things? <laughs> Yeah, so the stage we're at right now is just completing last year, the feasibility study. And so now we're working uh, quite closely with the city of Edmonton. Um, the project itself doesn't have a discrete location, so our next major step is to get that discrete location kind of nailed down. A feasibility study looks at different locations as part of the study and determines which would be the best location. Um, one of the locations, for example, that's come in top in our list is Northlands. Northlands is redeveloping. and uh, We participated in that uh, early call by the city for um, giving a proposal to uh, the Northlands Redevelopment uh, and Urban Planning Committee. Um, this is in itself a process which is very complex and, and as a biologist on the board, um, my position is vice chair, our chair uh, of the board, uh, Paula Pullman. She's actually leading the project and has experienced a lot working in the past with uh, nonprofit organizations. And this is a community-built project. So uh, what I mean by that is, in essence, um, it is envisioned as an aquarium-type project that you can run with a nonprofit. And there are nonprofit aquariums. Unfortunately, one of our last ones in Canada, uh, Vancouver Aquarium, just recently went private. Uh, and as part of the stakeholder uh, process, we did consult with major aquariums. And some of these major aquariums I worked with behind the scenes, um, so that's some value I brought to the project in the past in some of my work. And so I had some of those connections and it's very interesting talking to them uh, and looking at the process, whether they're private or whether they're nonprofit. And they're very successful, large, like Tennessee Aquarium, uh, New England and so forth, aquariums that are um, nonprofit in the US still. Uh, so to envision a project that's built from the bottom up, so to speak, um, we are now at a stage of working with the city we've been doing it early on. So it was fascinating to see an experience where I walk into a meeting with like 15 in the administration directors at the city and they're all uh, reacting to the project. Like, well, mostly people have come to us after they've got everything done and say, you know, we'd like this location, we'll purchase this land. And it's, it's a totally different reception if you go early on. We went a few yeah. years back and... They all showed up to the meeting and they were all fascinated by the project and all very interested in the project and very engaged by the project idea. And so we've taken that approach with the city too. And they've been very supportive and they're guiding us through the projects because we don't want to make mistakes. We don't want to do things wrong. We don't, you know, we're not politicians. And so now we're getting um, uh, meetings with, uh, we've met with almost all city councillors. And so we hope to present something to the city council in the fall. So we're making people aware of the project um, at that stage uh, to really get a settlement on location uh, and um, then go through further uh, development yeah, of like design. One, and so one of my questions was like, how big of a space is this going to be? Like, I'm sure that's yeah. probably constantly evolving. Mm -hmm. um, somewhat. I mean, we have a realistic, with the feasibility study, we have receive the information on, you know, you can go very small, you can go medium, or you can go larger. And um, the size we're aiming for, they suggested in the study, was uh, a medium. Uh, and the feasibility study came back very positively, showing that uh, the supports of the economics, for example, if we were located here in Edmonton, which is one of our top areas to look at, and uh, in that location to have enough people visiting it, to have international visitors, to have the location at a place that's critical where you could have easy access by, say, something like LRT, and you could have um, the area support it, so you're not interfering with the community and developing uh, a project like this and having to remove things from the community, save areas they value, uh, and you're bringing things to the community. So uh, the area that we're looking at is somewhere about, say, um, depending on the build, you can, a good example is the most recent build in Canada is Ripley's Quarry in Toronto. Have either of you visited that? Anyone? No. No. I would love to, but no. <laughs> it is uh, a narrow, uh, relatively small footprint, and they did it successfully in the middle of a city, and they went down. So this is one of the things in building something that's sustainable and environmentally uh, recognized as being able to, you know, be net zero kind of thing where it doesn't require excess energy input uh, over the whole year is you can go down. And when you go down, they went down three stores. 
And so when you do that, um, you can actually conserve a lot of your heat and recycle a lot of yeah, your heat wow. and so forth. And we all know we have winters here. Yes. <laughs> Sorry to mention that in the middle of the summer. But. So the size of the footprint, um, around something about that size, we're looking at a, around, say, uh, I think it's uh, recommended around, say, 9,000 square feet or... Um, no, meter squared, sorry, or 100,000 square feet. So five acres uh, in and around directly the building its size itself. And then depending on if you have an area where you're sharing parking or you have parking availability, how much you dedicate to that and other factors, we really want to do green space. And one of the things that's important to think of in the concept that we're envisioning is the public's aspect of understanding the story of water has many cultures. And one thing I've been pushing for on the project um, and mentioning on almost every meeting I go is when you first approach the facility, um, I really want people to have an understanding and, and, and an impact that brings in Indigenous knowledge. And not just to put Indigenous knowledge in the facility where you have just, you know, go, you go up to a single display, you read a little bit or something like that. Mm -hmm but when they first see the facility and how it's integrated into the environment. So the surrounding environment and the story of water in the various indigenous cultures, when you first come up to it. So that's a very critical component that should be mentioned as part of the project because the public itself is obviously very aware of that also. And in the surveys that we've done in market analysis um, is, and even internationally, very interested in understanding that more and, and having it as part of something that they visit uh, beyond the actual, you know, aspects that we experience on a larger cultural, excuse me, level within Canada. I mean, that's really interesting. Like we just had the Pope come and they did the whole thing down to Lac St. Anne because it is a mm -hmm. really important space and the water is like a sacred area. So I think that is really interesting. Um, when you say five acres, I'm just trying to get a picture in my mind of like, what like is there a, an equivalent is that like the size of the coliseum like the old coliseum could you guys set up in there um i'm just kind of looking for like what how much space is that so i guess if you think of say your average a good comparison that might work in the general understanding is something like a community rec center when you go to it, a larger one um i don't know the size exactly of the old calls Coliseum, the old dairy yeah. that I know it has issues and they want to demolish it, um, or they've mentioned with the city level. Um, but it's a it's a significant structure, but the build also cost to something like this. Um, so is not obviously cheap in the millions range. So say around 200, 250 million to build the structure. But you do have a lot of aspects where you can vary that. Um, I don't believe in kind of sprawling structures. I believe in structures that are able to use those aspects of the conservation and the sustainability. So really when people are going in this and going through the path uh, itself, there are so many aspects that people don't necessarily know um, that you can integrate into a structure and make it part of the environment. So there's an aspect in the project that I always mention uh, that I've uh, brought up is... Um, Growing and sustaining things locally. We recognize now how much more important that is. So one of the things that community is always interested in is growing food and not just maybe growing food for four months of the year. With this type of facility, which hasn't been done before, and one of the unique things we want to integrate is things like aquaponics. So where you can grow food, because what large aquariums do is they can recycle their water, which surprised most people, about 98% of the water is recycled. And um, you can also uh, pull off the waste from the organisms. Now, what they usually do with the waste itself is they pull it off, they filter it off, get a solid waste, the nitrogens, the phosphates, the fish fertilizer, so to speak, everything that people want to grow their gardens with, Yeah, and they get rid of it. So what we want to do is integrate that aspect of the hydroponics and have a greenhouse-type uh, area or an area that actually allows um, not only growth of food, it connects with that sustainability, more food produced locally. We're already heating. The water is your heat reservoir. Uh, the oceans regulate our environment that way. And when you have large masses of water, they tend to do that. They retain the heat, slowly release the heat. And you can do this technologically nowadays. But large aquariums have not done this yet, linked it with the actual food production to a certain level um, that actually does something in the project that's amazing to people and gives access to the community. 
which is the thing I've been bringing up again and again, because we want that inclusion. We want that accessibility. So we want people to say, hey, you know, I can go to the community gardens at the aquatic biosphere and I can go there year round. Now, that's a completely different approach than has been done before on a project. I mean, I think that's absolutely fantastic. I mean, tickled pink. Well, I, I, <laughs> I don't know if this is kind of like a similar thing that could be used this way, but I know uh, a farmer um, back in my hometown who's recently um, started a kind of like a greenhouse project with aquaponics. Mm-hmm. Um, where aquaponics? F- no. Aqu- is it aquaponics? Aqu- aquaponics, yeah. yes. Aquaponics. Um, like fish feeding on the on the roots of the plants, and then the fertilizer from the fish is like it's like this cycle mm-hmm. of thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. the circle of life. Circle of life. <laughs> yeah, they've done some interesting projects, um, more from the public's perception of that um, going in and experiencing something completely new. One of the most unique ones I've seen within say the last ten years. Um, although I haven't done. Uh, recent visit to a lot of the major new aquariums, the scale of some of those is mind-boggling. We're not going for that scale, so we're not going for, you know, three football links in size or something like that um, with, you know, whales and things like that. <laughs> I mean, you Which know, here on the prairies, there yeah, aren't too many whales. No, no. Um, is they had um, where you could put your hands into uh, tanks and the fish would nibble off all your dead skin. Oh, yeah. My son loved that. <laughs> I feel like I went down to... Uh, near drum heller and we were in the river and like you'd just be tubing in the river and they'd just be going crazy and i was like i hate this (laughs) (laughs) because then you get a really big fish and it's like oh my goodness are you talking about the asian carp are you seeing asian carp down there the prussian carp uh i don't know it was just by it's called stevesville Mm. alberta it's a tiny little campground and i don't i can't remember what the name of the river was but it could be that because i was like i've never been anywhere else in alberta where you put your feet in, and within 30 seconds, there's yeah. all these fish just being like, num, 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 num. <laughs> One of the kind of curious, like, um, a theme I use is kind of, and in some meetings, I just get the strangest looks, and I understand why, is thinking outside the box. So we were in a meeting with um, uh, ACA, or Alberta, Alberta Conservation Association, and and I said, well, why don't we do at the facility, you know, invasive species are very important. You're monitoring them and you're looking at Prussian carp. I said, so instead of doing, um, you know, the standard approach where, uh, and at some of these facilities, you know, you have like, say, a pond where they can view fish or you have a you fish, which is curious. I said, why don't you do a little you fish for invasive species? And there's this long pause. And then the director we're meeting with says, that's a really good idea, actually, because that would... If it's self-contained, obviously, a pool-like, you don't have it in or any way it can get out, so to speak. But you have the public actually catch it, which they really want to do, it seems, and see what it is. And then they actually interact with it and see it. And those invasive species are very important for the public to recognize and report, as we know, in various forms. Mm-hmm. And Prussian carp uh, is one of them, unfortunately, that's moving its way up through Alberta. Okay, and yeah. that might explain why in my whole 35 years of life, I have never like experienced that in an Alberta <laughs> lake, river, creek, anywhere. Yeah. So It's probably that. Like One of the projects, and one thing I should mention, is the integration and the ability to integrate in post-secondary, not only for the research and the development in the industrial aspect, is very broad. So if you look at McEwen University and its um, accessibility in a project like this and the connections at the various areas, so the various uh, academic fields, uh, almost everyone can be involved, which is when you think about it. So design of the facility, we've already worked with uh, students in design. We've already worked with uh, designing aspects. So they did a project with us, um, with the Conservation Association to do a small trailer that goes around and educates the public. Uh, called the minnow, cute name. And uh, they actually have uh, the ability in business. They've been working the business students on projects with us uh, to look at our market analysis, our business design. Uh, and biological sciences students have been working on the project. Um, you know, and when you actually design the facility, art in the facility, many different aspects. Um, studies could be done, for example. It seems to me almost limitless. Uh, interactions with the public, uh, Aspects in psychology, looking at, you know, dwell time in certain spaces or, you know, there's many 
uh, different disciplines that could work. It really uh, seems like the the like coming from the university, this is benefiting the project significantly, because not a lot of uh, not for profits or even for profits have the resources of all of these different disciplines coming together, especially on on uh, the level and scale that this is happening mm-hmm. at. Mm-hmm. And we've had some very successful, even early on, um, and integrated, for example, if I talk about biological sciences, some projects I did with, we submitted to get a grant um, from National Geographic to get an underwater drone. And we actually used that drone. Um, we were successful to get the grant and use the drone in Alberta lakes and ponds to look for invasive species. And so that's early on in the project, uh, some of that integration and eventually envisioning, you know, that this would be uh, not only an area that students could work at, because a lot of these aquariums I worked with in the past, they they do this, they integrate. A Vancouver Aquarium was one I worked with as a graduate student even. And they integrate student projects and they give them access to facilities behind the scenes, so to speak. And I want to take it even further with um, design of the facility. And the public gave us that as feedback early on. They said, well, the best thing we like about some of these is when we get to see how the science works. And so the, you know, the scientist in a fishbowl, so to speak. <laughs> so they're part of the actual exhibits. And we talked to California Academy of Sciences. I know the director of science there. And she was, uh, Dr. Bennett, she was very helpful in giving us some tips because um, that facility is actually a natural history museum, but they have a large, they're a large facility and they have science and research in the background. And she said, your best thing is to integrate it beforehand because we tried to retrofit a lot. And, you know, um, we found the ways that didn't work. So we'll tell you about those <laughs> and how, you know, the, the public just watching scientists write data down on a, on a, uh, a piece of paper <laughs> It's not that interesting. <laughs> and so that's very helpful in design of this. And I think that that's the bridge in knowledge that is often lacking. Like the public can't necessarily go and read your academic paper and understand it. Or if they do, they don't necessarily have the driver motivation. They want a different form of that. And they want that interaction. They want that immersion. Absolutely. That's amazing. I think this is a great spot where we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to be talking about life on the edge a little bit more about uh, the video game produced by McEwen's biology department in conjunction with design that you can read more about or listen to more about <laughs> on one of our last podcasts with uh, Dr. Isabel Sperano and uh, Robert Andruco. We'll be right back. All right, it's ad time. We have a very extra special ad for you today. You may recognize the name Lainey Beaver. She was a guest on the podcast for our student research podcast. Well, besides being a mother and a student and a researcher, she's also a beater and a jewelry designer. Owl Eyes by Lainey Beaver can be found on Instagram and Etsy. And you can find her and her beautiful handwork at the downtown Edmonton Farmers Markets. Find links in the episode description and consider supporting local and supporting Lainey next time you need something to jazz up your look. And we're back. So Ross, you mentioned that the biosphere was uh, one of two things on your bucket list. Um, And the other thing on your bucket list was life on the edge. And you've now accomplished that. So I'm kind of curious, when did you know that you know, creating a video game was something that was on your to do before I die <laughs> list of accomplishments. Um, I probably knew that early on when I started teaching at McEwen. I've been here for 22 years now, even saying that. And I know there's faculty that have been here longer, but it's, uh, I've been here a while. Yeah. So early on, I knew this because I was seeing that students were uh, playing video games more. Video games were becoming more. Uh, popular and the first kind of perception and still around today is um, not necessarily positive with that uh, it's similar to you think of when phones were introduced um, so we see phones as a distraction so if you're actually on a phone maybe you know a lot of people can interpret that you're distracted by it uh, so video games were perceived and can still be perceived the same way uh, today and a lot of it you know you hear for example um, say a parent comment oh you know ex-child is on video games all day. They're just not doing anything, so to speak. And one of the things that uh, is being missed in that is they're learning. And so I started to think, well, 
in an aspect of teaching, so being teaching folks to why see it as a distraction? So when someone's using their cell phone or um, video games in general, why not see how you can use it, especially the addiction part, which is funny because a lot of people mention that word with video games. And so I started looking into it more and I thought I'd love to be able to do a video game. Early on, I was thinking of a video game that was actually like Spore. Spore is a game that got, as we say, uh, nerfed. Um, because when they released it, they changed it for the market, but it was originally designed to actually, in the concept, show how uh, life could evolve, which is a very <laughs> complex thing to start to tackle, but to give another method to uh, explain that. And so when I say to students, I am fascinated and really taken in with uh, serious video games that kind of look at you and they're like, wow, it sounds really <laughs> intense. What do you mean by serious? And then I say... <laughs> educational video games and they go oh and their face kind of changes and you can see their face change to not necessarily positive which is curious and i say look uh, your reaction as soon as i say educational video game you're still like oh it's not going to be fun and that's the problem they found with educational video games a lot of them have focused on the education rather than making them fun and so much so that uh the uh, research field actually called for people as recently as 2017 to make more fun <laughs> educational <laughs> video games. And so I knew this quite a few years ago and I thought, um, I have to push past that kind of cultural perception. And I still did. And it's, it's, it's kind of changing because it's not going away. So it's kind of like saying, well, my students won't bring phones to class. They won't play video games. No, you can't expect that of students. You have to adapt and you have to see, well, what advantages are there to this in the learning process? And so that's where educational video games come in. And there's very few designed for university students. And that's one of the things I was surprised at, but I kind of knew there are, it's increasing, but especially in my area in biological sciences. And so they get a lot of exposure as students in K to 12. And then it's kind of like they meet the edge of a cliff and <laughs> Welcome to university. God, are your video games. Yeah, no more Oregon no more Trail for you. <laughs> and so we did a survey early on in some of our studies um, that I've collaborated with. Um, and you mentioned in the other podcasts, uh, so hopefully listeners will access those, uh, Isabel and Robert, that we actually, and Dana, we actually worked on um, surveying, well, how many uh, students at McEwen percent-wise would play video games and how often. And we were somewhat surprised, but about 50% of them play it almost daily. Oh, yeah. wow. Daily or up to weekly. <laughs> so you can see it's increasing. And you know that if you think, what are 400 million people doing right now as you listen to this, uh, they're playing Fortnite, for example, <laughs> at this moment, 400 million. Yes. So what are people doing uh, a lot? They're still, and it's increasing. And the video game industry, always people are surprised, makes more in movies. They think of the movie industry economically. Uh, is being big and making a lot of money. No, it's dwarfed by video games. So video games, a popular video game economically can make more money than a movie can make that's popular, like say something from Marvel or something. Mm -hmm. In a year, it takes Marvel to make that money. And a video game makes it in 24 hours. Yeah, so it's the like scale a massive, massive industry. Yeah. So I want to uh, continue to develop these educational games and link it with learning and focus on the fun and the academics, but not to lose the fun. And that's important. And that's difficult. And I didn't have the expertise to do this at any, at any scale, to be honest, <laughs> except for the ideas. So you asked kind of my role in the project. Yeah. Is overall is the project lead because I came with the original idea, but I needed all these other disciplines. So they had the expertise. I, I, I couldn't program and, graphics on a computer yeah, if I Yeah, and I tried. quickly want to stop you. Yeah. When you said Dana, <laughs> do you mean Dana Cobsash? Mm -hmm. Yeah. We also had her on the podcast. Yeah. She did not mention she was part oh, of the game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, no. And um, so I came with the original project idea, and my role was to oversee in that aspect of, you know, because I came with the idea and then worked with design uh, to get it narrowed down and go through that whole double design process. <laughs> double. I'm probably Isabel's <laughs> laughing if she's listening to this. <laughs> diamond design process, I can't pronounce it, uh, to figure out, well, what can we make uh, that will be within our realm? So, you know, I came with all these big dreams and they're like, whoa, 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 well, <laughs> we don't have the resources. We don't have millions of dollars here. You haven't come with a million dollar grant. And um, so the project really actually worked out 
I would say top notch because you get a game which is um, focused on teaching introductory biology concepts, but you're not asked as a student or a player in general, because people in general can play it, um, to sit down and spend weeks at it or be too challenged. And that's what people will be like, oh, you know, I, I, I don't have time for video games these years, or I don't have time for an educational video game. And so also think of focus. So think of students who are like using a lot of multimedia, TikTok, et cetera, and their focus is used to not a lot of time. And so we designed a game that uh, you can play in under two hours and yet learn from. Okay. And yeah, it's kind of just to refresh people's memory, you're, you're defending yourself as a cell <clears throat> mm -hmm. against things that are attacking. And I thought it was really cute because it was like, you know, the pandemic had just, you know, had us the in its clutches. And tower defense for Isabel humans. and Robert were talking about like how like coincidentally <laughs> we yeah. had already created a coronavirus as the ultimate boss. And I was like, I mean, that's funny. It's odd, but it's also, um, I always say eerie when I'm asked that question because uh, one of the one of the areas we talk about a lot in it seems all courses and culture in general, and I know people are tired of it, is these COVID and coronaviruses. But at this time, going back a few years, we started this project in um, 2017. We started writing up the first major grants. And I should mention McEwen University funded this project internally, mm -hmm. grants to us, which we are very grateful for, to give us that kind of ability to employ students. So it's also important to know that this project was built for students really or students, and that almost all the research funds went towards that. Uh, so the researchers were not off going to various places in the world on the funds by any means. It's, it was employing RAs, research assistants, to work on the project in uh, the disciplines. And the game itself uh, with coronavirus and some of these meetings, uh, I still remember distinctively some of the students. <laughs> the students were wonderful, and one of them said, you know, um, in design, she said to me, you know, as I was asking about their various backgrounds, she goes, Ross, I hate biology. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> so uh, she said, no, I never liked it. And you don't often encounter that. And I said, oh, well, maybe after this, I'll convince you a little differently. And so she was talking during one of the meetings, say, well, what kind of viruses and bacteria should we have? And I said, well, how about we attack the students first, their cell with... Uh, STIs, sexually transmitted infections. And there's a long pause again at the meeting, and <laughs> one of them first out laughing. It's like, yeah, that would get their attention. So <laughs> they get attacked by gonorrhea and things like this. <laughs> and and they get to learn about it. And then um, I was asked, well, what do you want as an a, a ultimate um, thing that they face in the game? Uh, a, a boss, or yeah. they call it in video games. The toughest, toughest thing you go up against. And, and I said, well, we should do... Uh, coronaviruses, because in the course I teach, uh, one of the courses I teach, uh, we look at infectious disease, there's a section on that, and we're always aware in biology that um, some of these uh, respiratory viruses like influenza and so forth, and students learn about this and others know about this, Spanish flu, they, they've come from within this group, this coronaviruses, crown of thorns. So I said, you need to do a coronavirus. So that is the eerie thing, because I I said, oh, I talk about this in courses. There will be a pandemic, so I think we should do a coronavirus. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it was, it was, a, it was not, it was, you know, and that's why it's strange. It but, is. But the public in release of the game, and it's... You were the one that invented it. <laughs> <laughs> they seem to like to fight, you know, it's popular uh, from various levels um, to fight coronavirus. But this one is linked with ways the cell can fight coronavirus. Yeah, I thought that was just like, it was such an interesting little piece of this story, which really goes to show, like, we really knew that this could happen all along, and yet here we are, two and a half years later. Well, that, would be, that would be the scientist <laughs> saying culturally, we told you so, we told you. Yeah, exactly. 100%. So, like, um, now that the game's been released, how has it been received? Mm -hmm. uh, whether it's analytically or just, like, you know, word of mouth, like, what are you hearing about this game? Uh, generally positive. It's always kind of nervous uh, to a uh, nervous aspect when, you know, you do this type of creative project and you spend so much time on it and effort and, 
and money you can put into it. And you think of a game and then it's not necessarily received properly, right? So you get the thumbs down versus thumbs up of the general public. <laughs> Which is a very <laughs> detailed analytic. And think of, well, that's how the culture seems to work nowadays, right? You get these trends, these things that take off. Um, and we've gotten thumbs up, which uh, I think the whole team is quite happy about. Um, and we've released it on a platform, uh, Steam. But the um, other flip side of that coin is um, getting it noticed. So you ask about, well, how's it going? Um, it's just been released and really needing to get the word out. And part of this podcast can be that because there are so many video games that are released and how do you get the attention of the public? And there's within this... Um, it's the world's largest distributor of digital content. And there are people in there called curators that go around and look at things and critique them. And, and they've even reviewed it positively, which is a really good sign because it shows us and we, you know, you can always self-believe and you can always say, you know, I think that this is the best thing. <laughs> but once you put it out there, you may get a totally different response. And it's been positive so far. So really what we need to do is we need to have people uh, comment on it, give us feedback, because we're continuing to work on the game. Uh, we just, uh, in collaboration, so one of the things I wanted to do early on in the project and bring the team into was uh, studying the educational effects, uh, the learning effects. And so we now have a grant, um, a SHRC grant, to study this in collaboration with Dr. G.A. Bong, who's at Concordia University in Montreal. And we just received that this uh, June, and uh, so we're going to use it again to employ students to actually uh, work on the research with us and to also modify uh, the game a bit based upon some of that feedback eventually that comes through. Well, like most game developers, they add new things, they mm -hmm. tweak it, you know, after they get a little bit of user feedback. You know, looking on the Steam Steam store right now, this is a getting very positive reviews on uh, on Steam. So I'd recommend checking out Life on the Edge for sure. You know, that little shout out. I want It's free too. That's important. It's free. And <laughs> it's, it's getting, free. It's we'll getting positive. We'll put a link in the episode description. You so can play you it can on Mac it and PC. Yeah. yeah. Can you play it on the phone? No, it is not adapted to the phone. No mobile okay. support. Is nope, there a plan that. for that? Because I know like, I mean, the phones. And that's something that you mentioned was that you know, a big piece of, of looking at students and being like, how do you turn this obsession with the smartphone into like a power for good? Like, mm -hmm. like, uh, what is that language one? Duolingo. Duolingo. You know, Duolingo is a, a great learning game, I think. Or like, is that something you would consider in the future is creating a different game that would be set for a platform? Like... Yeah, actually, Unity, I've learned from the computing science side, is actually a language that unifies different devices. So it's fascinating. That's why we could put it on. So the computer science aspect and explaining it to the biologist myself was like, <laughs> well, it's like Word, Ross. You know, you go in and you go file safe as and you go, you go PDF and you go these various versions. So I'm like, oh, I can understand that. And uh, losing all the technicality, of course, the... Um, it unifies these different devices. So it is possible um, to do it on phone, um, and it's something we could work on. We haven't discussed it as a team yet, uh, but it is um, an area that uh, definitely in exploring different devices, but my mind goes even further. Like I have a prototype I talked about at a conference a few years ago, and uh, other areas of VR and AR. So, um, And then I have a concept for an educational game in an area that... Um, I'm exploring with an external funder, which uh, is really where we need to go uh, for the next uh, major project. And so, um, and there's some initial interest in that. So giving students the ability to manipulate it, and I think an area that's coming that is being overlooked is um, VR and AR. And getting the devices to, like, my son uses an Oculus Quest, for example, that's totally wireless, puts it on jumps around. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that is where the technology is going. So when that's lighter weight, it's like your glasses uh, or something like that. That's when you, and you know, the business side of it was to push that price down, for example. So now that's cheaper than a phone. <laughs> There's a pause there. Most of the public probably is like, what? So the VR in that sense is cheaper than buying a phone. And people yeah. are used to being, yes, are used to buying phones. So that's where it's going to change. And once you get those economics and combination with the cultural, people will want to be immersed, like in that famous movie, Ready Player One. They'll want to access that. And that's where I'm already thinking, where I want 
like for example, students to be able to have a prototype already developed in conjunction with computer sciences is um, uh, being able to learn how DNA replicates mm-hmm. and is put together. So students can put on their VR headset and or VR glasses in class and go like this. I see the educational resources, and that's what this is an area being developed. I mean, something that just like literally popped into my head is like, is there a plan to incorporate this? With the aquatic biosphere, like maybe there's a VR experience where you are in a pond, you're a fish, and there's an invasive species, and you always lose. Like there's no way to win the game, and that's the piece of it. Like, is there a plan to incorporate um, this VR into the biosphere project? Oh yeah, the um, <clears throat> in the essence of developing some earlier initial things, the technology is there. You could do that. Um, they already have VR snorkeling. They have swimming with whales. Uh, as exhibits that are VR uh, and AR technology. So these are starting to come out. So yes, you could do that. Uh, you could merge those types of projects. Um, Some multimedia things to bring in, you know, yeah. Yeah. more experiences. Yeah, for sure. And um, it is an area that I see um, does that engagement with the learning. And it, that's really important because we're quite concerned in at least the academic fields of students um, being bored, unmotivated, you know, and disengaged. Um, and that connection between the actual learning and what cultural changes are occurring. And so it takes a lot of time, effort, and money uh, to develop these projects. Like you look at even a video game, uh, it can be millions to develop. And then you don't know if it'll be successful. So... You really have to, I've discovered work uh, and do the uh, consultations early on. We did prototype testing in ours and see the reactions of people, see from the students to faculty, we did both. Uh, and the overall process is complex and it takes multiple disciplines and it's a fabulous opportunity for students. It would, that's integrate both projects, yeah. Okay, well, I mean, we are coming to the end of our time today, but... We want to leave um, it obviously with you. Is there something that we forgot to ask about or that you really want our listeners to take away from today's conversation? Um, I guess the only thing I'd mention back to um, maybe the first part, the Aquatic Biosphere. We actually have a podcast. <laughs> oh, okay. You can see it's it's also become very successful. It's called Water We Doing. Water we doing so you can google that it's on apple podcast okay Sorry. amazing we it's will... not competition it's just let's there's promote no each other as, yeah there's no such thing as yeah competition. we're let's, very collaborative let's, exactly let's promote each other okay uh can we just hear a little bit maybe about what the podcast is about or what people can expect yeah so this is um a podcast led by david evans our director of conservation and he is collecting in we're in season two experts from around the world and looking at aspects of how we use and are impacted uh, by this precious commodity of water. So there's many things on the podcast. He looks at reef chemistry, coral reefs, uh, interviews people, metals that are being extracted from the oceans, uh, geothermal energy. Uh, He looks at food fraud in Canada with fish and other things, Uh, desert locusts, you know, wildfires, all these things that people don't necessarily make a connection with water but are connected to water. Well, we will put a link to that in the episode description, along with a link to the game. It's free on Steam. Go play it. Well, that's all we have for today's episode of Research Recasted. If you want to dive deeper in today's podcast, you can visit Research Recasted on your favorite podcasting platforms to find new episodes every two weeks. Also, check us out on Instagram at Research Recasted, where you can leave a like, give us a follow, or send us a message if you have any follow-up questions for today's episode. This has been Research Recasted, a knowledge mobilization podcast brought to you by the Office of Research Services and Faculty of Fine Arts and Communications at McEwen University. Research Recasted is hosted and produced by Dylan Cave and Brittany Eklund. Music, sound design, and editing are by Dylan Cave, with research, copy editing, and scripting by Brittany Eklund. Our executive producer is Ray Bree.